morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, this two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, August 11th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44 through chapter 5, verse 21. Moses begins his second sermon in the book of Deuteronomy with familiar and foundational material, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks for having me. As we get started today, Pastor Cook, let's talk a little bit of context. We're in a, a bit of a transition here in the book of Deuteronomy. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text today? We should pay attention or recognize that uh, many people recognize, uh, acknowledge that 444 is the beginning of a new section uh, within the book. So it's a pretty common structure uh, to see. And as one you alluded to in your opening, that there are kind of three sermons that are presented here by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And this would kick off the third one or the second one, excuse me. And uh, so in that regard, we're we're starting we're starting fresh. It's not to say the first sermon doesn't matter, um, but uh, it has less of bearing contextually uh, than maybe any other place in in the book. Uh, and so we we kind of kick off, and we're going to recognize immediately that it follows a similar structure to the opening of the book of Deuteronomy, which also serves as the opening of the first uh, sermon of Moses. Mm. Yeah, so it is. It is not. It's not unrelated to what we've heard already. A lot of what, what was there in the first sermon, the historical background, the exhortation to listen to the Lord's word, that does provide background. But we are starting a, a new section here, a new sermon. This one really takes up the majority of the book. This we're going to be listening to Moses speak now all the way for several chapters in the book of Deuteronomy, past 26, 27, 28, those chapters, Moses is going to be speaking, really laying out the covenant and how that covenant applies to life in the promised land. He's going to start today with the what's called the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. That's what we get to talk about today. So let's, let's pick up the introduction to this sermon, which is the end of chapter 4. So we're looking at Deuteronomy 4, verses 44 to 49 to get started. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, when Moses and the people of Israel, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pisgah. 
That takes us to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is the introduction to the second sermon that Moses preached. As you mentioned, it's there bears some similarities to the introduction to the whole book, to the first sermon of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 1. What are some of the things we need to, to see from these verses? Yeah, the uh, consistency uh, from the beginning. So it's not telling a, a new thing. It's a recapitulation of what has been mentioned. So there's a consistency uh, is what we're going to acknowledge. Uh, also, it says this is a law, um, which, you know, is uh, the word Torah um, in Hebrew. So the, it's this general instruction. We don't want to read the law of Moses uh, in that kind of uh, Lutheran framework of law and gospel, as in this is the part that accuses us of our sins, as though there's no proclamation of Christ to be found. It, it's the entire instruction um, of of Moses, which is really the entire instruction of God through through His anointed one. Um, so that's the uh, the Torah, and then it it kind of uh, blossoms from there, and we get a few more words that are synonyms to the word law. We have in my ESV, it will read as testimonies, statutes, and rules. It's not uncommon to see the word decrees thrown in there with other translations. Um, and so it's uh, a general instruction and then kind of divvied out uh, to include all the different ways we might imagine instruction coming to us, be it uh, oral proclamation, uh, written word, uh, or common wisdom. So um, those are that's what Moses is putting, putting before the people. And of course, by putting it before them, this is public. This is not a, a hidden secret knowledge or something like that. It is, is a public declaration. It is a bold and clear confession. And so that's mm. where we're going. All right. And he does so in this land that has already been conquered. Much of the history of how the people of Israel came to possess the land that's described here by taking over the two kings, that was recorded in the book of Numbers, and Moses recounted much of it already in the book of Deuteronomy. This land is already secure. The Lord has given them this land ahead of time. We talked about it being a foretaste of the Lord's fulfillment that is yet to come, building of the confidence. And a reminder of that here before the second sermon, I suppose, provides some motivation for the people of Israel to listen to what Moses is about to say and then to do what the Lord is about to give them in this covenant. The Lord has showed him faithful in providing the land on which they're about to hear this sermon. Now listen, listen to this God who has shown such faithfulness to you. So, Moses begins his second sermon in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We pick up the text now. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. 
for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That takes us through the end of our text today, through the end of Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. So, Pastor Cook, take us into to the introduction. We, we, we have the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, I think that'll provide the majority of our conversation today, but there is a bit of introduction before Moses lays that out. He, he calls the people to him, and he says, Hear, listen. Take us into to verse 1. Okay. The word here is often understood in the con- context or kind of the, the force of obey. In the same way, a teacher or a coach will say, listen up. They're not just asking you to hear what they're saying, but actually do and carry out the, the words that will follow. Uh, that's a common refrain throughout the book of Deuteronomy. It already happened, I believe, in chapter 4, verse 1. Um, but then it will, uh, occur four more times after this. So, uh, famously in hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one in chapter, chapter six. Uh, so this is a thing we're going to, uh, listen to, and then be attentive toward, uh, all the things that, that follow. Um, he exhorts them in, and just in case that wasn't clear, he says, you shall learn them suggesting that these are things that are can be can be learned should be learned maybe are not intuitive require some form of study and attention and devotion uh, and then he says be careful to do them uh, and mm-hmm. so they are not uh, it's this is not a situation where we're being told something that we can't accomplish um, we can't accomplish it perfectly but but that's uh, but it is something we're, we're told, told to do. Um, mm. And that's very clear that you cannot get around the clear exhortation that, hey, you need to be careful and devote yourselves to, to doing these things. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's kind of all, all going to set up. And then he's going to remind them of the pressing relevance of these words. He says in verse 2, uh, our, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, and then he clarifies, not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are alive today. Uh, you know, technically, chronologically, God did make this covenant with the fathers, 
that's right. you know so sometimes you can uh if you want to be insubordinate or disrespectful or just annoying to a spouse or a or you know children do this uh, friends at school uh, <laughs> oh it took you know 30 years to get through that stoplight and then someone says oh really 30 years you know so there's there's a there's a rhetorical force of what these words mean uh, so I, I would encourage the listeners um, obviously we are going to take the the word of God uh, seriously and and trust the claims that it makes here um, but it is possible to fall too far down that to the point where you just toss common sense out the window and so the point that Moses is making is this is as relevant and true for you these expectations as they were back then they didn't this is nothing new it hasn't ceased in relevance or importance uh, and so keep that in mind Right. I, yeah, I think maybe the the way we can understand verse three is, in, at least in in terms of its rhetorical force, as you said, is not only with our fathers, or not merely with our fathers, but with us. He's he's saying, look, it, yes, chronologically speaking, he gave it to the fathers, but for for what purpose? Only for that generation? No, it has a a lasting effect, and I, I, mean, I think this is a pretty key verse when we think about the use of the word of God for us as Christians, that these these books of the scriptures, which were written long ago, they actually are written for us. I mean, we need to we need to be careful so that we don't misunderstand, but they are in fact for us, even though they were written however many years ago each one was written. Right. And it uh when you were speaking that my mind immediately went to Acts two verse thirty-nine uh in verse in Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on, it says, and this, you know, the promise is for you and your children. So there it's just explicit, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and of course, not just you and like children who are actually children, but you and subsequent generations. Like this promise is not a, well, you know, baptism was a, was a good idea back then, but it isn't today. Um, right. Nope, it still applies today. It's as truthful and promise-filled and grace-giving today as it was as it was then. Mm, right, and so as as the people of Israel listen to Moses's sermon here on the plains of Moab, they are to understand it not as dry or dead history, but as the living word of God for them at that moment, and to lead them then into the promised land. Talk talk a little bit more about the importance that this is God's word. You, you mentioned at the beginning that word here, and how it carries a bigger force than just you know let the sound go into your ears, but actually listen to it, learn it, take it to heart, do it. Why is it significant that the word of the Lord? That's what's leading. That's what Moses is leading with here. It's well, it's all they have. Um, we're gonna we're gonna immediately move into kind of the we're not gonna be making uh, idols uh, and things of that sort. Uh, so it, it, it kind of there's so many things. It, the word is life. It's it's the creative and sustaining force of all that God is, and we're gonna see that exhortation about you know when you wake up in the morning and walk along the road and sit down at the table and lie down at night. Uh, that's that's all coming up here. Uh, in due season, um, but the but the Lord is going to carry out His work by His Word. Now, of course, this Word will uh, take on flesh and 
in the person of, of Jesus Christ. Um, so all of that is, is coming in, coming into play. So as, as Moses continues then in verse four, making it clear that this word from God is for you standing here today for this very generation, he reminds them of, of what happened there at Horeb at Mount Sinai. Now, what does he, what does he say about the way that Lord, the Lord spoke to them on Mount Sinai in verses four and five? So it says the Lord spoke with you face to face. So this is a kind of a direct right to them kind of a thing. Uh, out of the midst of, of fire, he goes on to say, well, I, I stood between you and the Lord. And uh, he says there's, um, well, he says he stands, between. it's fascinating. He's standing between the people and the Lord, the Lord who's speaking. And Moses's purpose of doing this is then he goes on to declare to you the word of the Lord. And so the, the word of the Lord is being transmitted uh, through means, and I might be taking this too simply, um, but uh, but it's right there. Verse four: The Lord spoke to you face to face. I stood between you and the Lord to declare to you the word of the Lord. So Moses has this mediating function between the Lord and the people, and then he tells them, he reminds them, you know, you were afraid because of the fire. You did not go up the mountain. Uh, he does. He does not seem to remind them that. Part of the reason they didn't go up the mountain is because they were going to die. Um, so there, there are other reasons for not going up the mountain, but it all it all bleeds together into um, into the fear, and uh, and so I think if you're going to encounter the Lord and His Word on your terms, it destroys you. <laughs> uh, it's powerful and it's big and it's great. But if you encounter the Lord's word uh, given to us graciously on his terms uh, through the means in which he mediates it uh, in this particular historical context through Moses, in our own historical context through Christ, and then, of course, uh, you know, the, the church built up um, on, on earth. Now, now we have uh, a God who is all-powerful, uh, who isn't consuming us, but building, sustaining, redeeming, forgiving uh, the people of God. So that the mediating aspect of Moses uh, is is very, very important. And oftentimes we, and this might just be because I'm a Lutheran pastor, but you, you hear, you know, Christ is not a new Moses. He's not a new lawgiver, and that's that's true. Uh, but oftentimes. Moses is a, you know, foreshadowing or a type uh, of uh, of Christ in the mediating that he does between God and the people and the people of God. So that is to be mm-hmm. taken into account as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the the key verses, I think, from the entire book of Deuteronomy, Professor Harstad mis- mentioned this in our introductory episode, comes from Deuteronomy chapter eighteen where Moses tells the people, there will come a prophet like me from among your brothers. That verse being even you know alluded to in the transfiguration of our Lord, where the Father's voice says of Jesus, listen to him. That's what the people are to do for this prophet who is to come like Moses. It seems that, that the way Moses stands as the mediator here, it would be one of those examples of how Christ is that prophet like Moses. Again, not in the sense that he's a new lawgiver, but that he... He takes what Moses did and and fulfills it in his role. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's uh, I like I like the way you've I like the way you've said that. I also would like to point out that what's going to come here, of course, is the uh, the ten words or, or the ten commandments, and this is not a uh, hey, if you do these things, you'll be able to hear this word of God without death. You know, the, the, this this is given, even this law, this order, this structure, uh, this design is given as gift by God through his mediated ser- mediating servant. Um, and so anytime you have a conversation about the Ten Commandments, there is that fear because we are twisted and corrupt sinners that we will take these things as uh, a means by which we can ascend our way to God. Well, the whole chronology is backwards. Uh, these words came to the people through a mediator um, and not because they did them, <laughs> but, mm. but because they were... Um, you know, recipients of God's good gifts. And the, the law is, uh, it is a, a good gift from God that uh, in our sinfulness will reveal the truth that we know to be, which has always been there, right? Which is you touch the mountain and you're going to die. Uh, it will expose that as being a real problem. So it, it's a gift that reveals our need for a mediator. So as the as the ten words get started, verse verse five leads up to that. You know, he said that is the Lord said, and then verses six to twenty one here in Deuteronomy five. These are the the ten words. There's a number of things that we can talk about here, Pastor Cook. This is the the first chief part of the catechism. So I imagine you and I have have no lack of things to talk about when it comes to these these ten commandments, these ten words. Uh, before we uh, before we just start reciting Luther's small catechism, you know, I, I don't think we'll do that. But before we before we maybe dig into individual commandments as they're given, it's it's probably worth noting that as the he said at the end of verse five comes, the first thing that he the Lord said is not what we learn as the first commandment in our small catechisms, but rather something else, something that isn't a command at all. What what do we see there and at the beginning of these ten words in verse six? We see the Lord define or self-identify. So he identifies himself on behalf of the people. And so he declares to the people who he is. That's the first, uh, that's the first word. So it is, um, it is both helpful and frustrating that we have what we call the Ten Commandments, uh, which is not necessarily the greatest uh, <laughs> A tr- translation. Uh, and so the Decalogue, uh, as it's, a, you know, kind of a technical term, which just means the 10 words is better because it, it, it allows then for non-commands to be part of this important um, testimony that is offered by God. And a significant and extremely important part of this testimony is God telling you who he is, especially if the first commandment, as we've come to know it in the cate- catechism, uh, is uh, you shall have no other gods. Okay, so what God should I have? Well, we already know the answer to that question because in verse 6 he tells us, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is going to identify himself according to his saving activity on behalf of his treasured possession uh, to steal language from a forthcoming chapter of Deuteronomy. 
right. That's right. So, I mean, God God defines himself then by his his action, his deeds, which is not precisely the same way that God identified himself when Moses asked who he is in the in the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Moses said, hey, what's your name? If they ask me, what's your name? What do I tell them? God says, I am who I am. Now, he, he expands upon that more, but but here he doesn't so much simply repeat that I am who I am name, but he rather defines himself by his deeds for his people. Why is that important? Well, because that's who, who God is uh, as, a, you know, it is his glory to show mercy and grace. When I think I, it's when Moses asked that question, uh, he can't identify himself as the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt because he hasn't yet. That has not yet occurred. Um, but uh, so that that's at play. Um, but God is going to be known as um, he's, he's going to be known as the one who carries out this, this saving work. I feel like I'm not being particularly articulate, but it is interesting when you consider the creed, you know, I believe in God, mm-hmm. the father almighty, you know, what is, what is kind of the one thing that we, that we say about God, the father almighty, well, he's maker of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And when you go through the Psalms, right, the Lord who made heaven and earth, the Lord who made, he's always kind of identified as, as the one who made heaven and earth yeah. uh, or uh, as is found in some of the longer Psalms, like Psalm 78, um, he's he's identified as the God who, right here, uh, brought you up out of the land of yeah. Egypt. So we're communicating via radio to 21st you know, century folks. Uh, our modern day hearers are going to, you know, we too are worshiping this Lord who brought his people mm-hmm. up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And, uh, and yet there is a greater salvation that has happened than that for each one of us. Uh, and that is God's salvation for us through his son's death on the cross. So when you move into the New Testament, God identifying himself through his writings or through his apostles, the apostles don't stand up and say, hey, I'm speaking on behalf of the God who brought Israel up out of the house of slavery. They stand up and say, hey, we're, we're speaking on behalf of God whose son has died on the cross and uh, has been raised from, from the dead. And so immediately, this is how I teach it to my congregation and my catechism kids, the single greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament, and there are a lot of them, is the Exodus. It's number one. Um, it's it's an all-encompassing uh, corporate uh, salvation of the entire people of God, um, and uh, and that is now even broader and bigger and greater uh, through in Christ's death uh, on the cross. Which, if we're going to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration again, uh, Moses and Elijah they're talking about Jesus's right. Exodus, uh, as yeah. uh, Evangelist Luke shares. So it's it's all. It's all connected. It's all working That's right. together. That's right. It's all working together, all pointing us toward our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to keep looking at this text on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Deuteronomy chapter 5 with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, August 11th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44 through chapter 5, verse 21 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we got up to the actual 10 words, as at least as we number them in our catechisms. And, and we won't have time to dig into every single commandment as we know them. If, if you have questions about each commandment, what it means, for example, the catechism is a great place to turn. For our conversation today, I would like to at least get us started by talking about the centrality of the 10 words or the, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, because they, they show up first in Exodus 20, when the Lord starts to speak there on Mount Sinai, the first thing he gives are these 10 words. And as Moses now beginning the second sermon with the law, the Torah, he begins with these 10 words as well. Uh, talk a little bit about the the centrality of the, the Decalogue, both for Israel and also for us. Okay. Uh, um, commentators will point out that in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, this second kind of sermon from Moses, which begins with the, with the 10 words, uh, will then provide the structure for the chapters that follow. And they've, they've divvied this out. So um, chapters such and verses to such and such correspond with, with this word uh, or sentence or clause. And, and you can kind of you can just watch it unfold uh, very predictably. Uh, as you move forward from here, so it, it serves it's serving as a gateway to the rest of this sermon, almost a uh, when I was learning speech in high school or or uh, public speaking, you know, you're going to tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them, kind of a concept. Right. Uh, so you have that uh, at play. The centrality then, if if you're looking for um, more evidence to the significance. Uh, these 10 words are what's put in the Ark of the Covenant. You know, it's not the whole book of Deuteronomy plopped down in, in the Ark. Uh, it's, it's these, these 10 words. So they serve as a, as a summarizing, all encompassing, uh, kind of this, you know, what is God's will for my life? Well, it's, this isn't, what college does he want me to go to or what person does he want me to marry? This is God's will for your life. Uh, have no other gods. Don't misuse his name. Remember the Sabbath day. Um, honor your father and mother. And within that, massive amounts of freedom, just massive amounts of freedom uh, about the direction your life can take uh, and honor these things. Be right. Learn and be careful to do, to do these things. And so if you find yourself where, 
you're in a vocation that constantly forces you to, uh, you know, have to compromise on one of these, then you probably need to reconsider whether this is what God's will for your life is. Um, so there's that structure. Broadly speaking, uh, Christ gets this question, uh, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And he just summarizes um, the Ten Commandments even more concisely, love love God and love your neighbor. And so we'll speak um, about the two tables of the law, uh, words that govern our relationship with God, and then words that govern our relationship with our neighbor. And those are both uh, significant uh, things to consider because we're living in a uh, relationship of with both at any given time, but you know the rules for how I relate with my Lord uh, are different than the way I relate with with my neighbor, and the way I relate with my neighbor varies based on my own uh, position or uh, station in life. So, we that's all kind of set up uh, here here at the beginning. So it's a lot mm-hmm. to unpack. Yeah, there there really is. Let, let's let's talk a little bit more about the as you said it the freedom that exists within these ten words, and and thinking particularly about how these words then come to us. What's the well? What's the what's the comfort there in the freedom? And what's the comfort in the fact that God just gives us these words at all? Why is I mean you know we think of sometimes as as you brought out you know we think of law and we hear that word as Lutherans and we're like. Those are the commands. They show me my sin. I, I don't really want to listen to those, but the law is good, as we know. It is God's word. Now, what's the what's the comfort within that freedom and even the comfort in the fact that God just gives us this word at all? The comfort is that it takes out the guesswork. Uh, it is difficult to live an entire life walking on eggshells. Uh, is this pleasing to God? Is it not pleasing to God? Is it pleasing? All that. Is, it takes it out. Uh, you can... God has by his grace, actually told us this is uh, to steal a line from St. Paul, good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Um, And uh, so Martin Luther wrote, uh, historically, Lutherans were accused of uh, being opposed to good works because we would refuse rightfully uh, to suggest that good works are necessary for salvation. Um, And so Luther was sensitive to that accusation as though we were trying to get away from all uh, piety and structure and order and godly living. And his treatise on the good works is, uh, you know, if I think of the copy I have over a hundred pages long, I mean, it's a lengthy treatment, but it's just a commentary. It's a commentary on the 10 commandments. And if you want a commentary on that commentary, you can read the large catechism. And if you want a commentary on the commentary of the commentary, you read the small catechism. <laughs> um, but he, 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 he lays this out. And in there, he is so uh, assured about, um, you know, he's, he's fighting against kind of made up good works uh, such as the purchasing of indulgences or the joining of brotherhoods or the, or the fasting on certain uh, feast days or you know giving up meat on Fridays during Lent, that kind of stuff, pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He said, people have been telling you these are good words, good works to do. He said, but they, none of them have the command or the um, blessing of the word of God. He said, the Ten Commandments, that is the word of God. It has this blessing. And so we can be confident that, um, you know, the kind of the famous stories about the 
milkmaid or, you know, changing diapers or kind of the, the not trivial, but boring, the ordinary uh, tasks of everyday life. He says these are more pleasing to God than, you know, um, re- renouncing marriage and, and taking up some holy order. Uh, and so that there's, there's some freedom, right? Freedom right there. And, uh, and that's, that's a blessing from God. I think that's, I'll kick it back to you before I dive into the next thing. No, I, I, I think that's really well said. And, and just the, as you mentioned, the very ordinary nature of the 10 commandments, these, these 10 words is, is quite striking. I mean, you know, it is, it is a quote, religious text. We're talking about spiritual things. But when you look at what God gives, they are all very simple, you know, don't worship anybody, but the true God don't misuse his name. Like take the day off, honor your parents, don't kill people, be faithful to your spouse. I mean, like these are, these are just every quote, everyday things. And, and yet, God calls them good. And and there is comfort in knowing that, that, that when I am engaged in these things, I am engaged in things that, that please God, not as a way, as you said, not as a way to, to climb the ladder up to him, but simply to receive his will, his, his good life. And, and maybe that can springboard into the next point, this, this good life, that the 10 commandments, again, them being given here in the Old Testament, and we still learn them as Christians today. We we memorize them. We memorize their meanings in the catechism. I mean, talk about that, I guess, eternal nature of what is described here in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments don't aren't going away. Um, and so this eternal concept, Luther in the small catechism under the second petition We'll talk about leading godly lives here in time and there in eternity, which means the godly life uh, is an eternal one. And uh, what do you envision this uh, eternal life, the salvation, this paradise in the new heavens and new earth to look like? Uh, it's going to look like people who uh, worship the Lord their God and don't misuse his name, uh, who uh rightly uh, hear and learn uh, his word uh, by remembering the Sabbath day as we would characterize that. It looks like uh, honoring authority and authorities not abusing the authority they have. Uh, It looks like no murder. You know, nobody thinks of heaven as a place that's rampant with sexual assault um, or theft. Um, And um, it'll look like uh, not bearing false witness uh, nor, nor coveting. So, um, Martin Luther has a, a sentence in his uh, antinomian theses. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's arguing against Martin Luther is talking about, about circumcision. He says the Decalogue uh, is greater and better than circumcision because it is written in the hearts and the minds of all and will remain with us even in the coming life. Um, not so circumcision. And then he says only the Decalogue is eternal uh, as such. Uh, that is not as law, because in the coming life, things will be like what the Decalogue has been demanding. Finally, the Decalogue is also nobler for the reason that it brought Christ from heaven. For if there had not been the Decalogue that accused and condemned us, for what I ask would Christ have descended? And so the, the point is, uh, it, right, this is God's will for us. So it's not a secret, you know, um, and uh, we, we know what God's will is. And because we know what it is. We also know where we've fallen short, uh, which means 
that uh, having fallen short, we live in a world that's uh, broken, chaotic, sorrowful, and uh, frankly, we need saving. And so it is this, this, this decalogue, this will of God that we cannot carry out. Uh, but there is one who can, uh, and it's, it's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so leaving heaven, as Luther says, he comes to earth, uh, not to remove one jot or tittle, uh, but, but to fulfill. He's going to fulfill the, the, will, the will of God and, uh, mm. and give to us this, uh, this, this good life, not on account of our works, uh, but on, on account of, of Christ alone. So I, I, I agree with, with all that you just said. I found it very helpful, especially the way that it connects us to Christ. In, in terms of the eternal nature of the Decalogue, however, there's, there's at least one point that I think maybe we, we need to clarify a little bit. I think the most obvious one would come with the what we nam- number as the third commandment, observe the Sabbath day or remember the Sabbath day as it's, it's given in Exodus 20, which for us as Christians, we don't as, as it says here, six days you labor, the seventh day, Saturday, you don't do any work. We don't keep that according to the, the letter of the law, if I can put it that way. So how does how does that, and that in particular, maybe you can broaden it a little bit, but how does that factor into the eternal nature of the Decalogue? Yeah, in the New Testament, it'll talk about, you know, we're entering this eternal Sabbath rest uh, in, in Christ, uh, where we have the the always recognition of, of holy things. Um, so that's one way uh, it, it factors in. Um, the other one is the, the Sabbath day will, um, in uh, Genesis, it says that uh, God set aside, set aside this day to be holy. You know, well, that's said already in Genesis chapter two, what, verse two, uh, something very early, pre the, the fall into sin. Right. So I always it always strikes me as a little odd that we're already talking about holy things when nothing has gone wrong yet. Um, Mm. But it's kind of set aside. And what what is the day that's set aside is what's the holy day? The one where you don't do anything. The the, the holy day is the one where you're not supposed to do any work just so you're aware. Right. It just smacks you in the face like, oh, right. This this holiness is not its gift. It's not achievement. Uh, or merit. And so I, I like to highlight that particular uh, characteristic. Um, here, it's associated almost exclusively with the salvation of God. Um, so, it's, you know, it says, uh, you're going to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord, got you brought, Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand, outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So you're just going to bask and remember uh, this salvation from God, which, by the way, is, salvation is a one-time event in the sense that it was accomplished once and for all in a point in history, and yet the the realities of the salvation are enduring. Um, this is what got the sons of Korah in so much trouble. They were going to elect a leader and, and go back to the land of slavery. Paul won't allow that either in his context of Romans 6 with baptism. How can you who died to sin still still live in that. You can't do that. Don't go back. Mm. We're not going back. The, the salvation realities are present present today. And the, the Sabbath, the remembering of the Sabbath will help us remember the, the enduring uh, salvific work of our Lord. Mm. 
which I think is is one reason why it's it's okay for Christians to worship on Sundays rather than Saturdays, because as the as our Lord makes plain in the Gospels and and throughout the New Testament, the apostles are also clear that the the Sabbath, as it was given in the Old Testament for the people of Israel, then it was necessary for them to observe Saturday. But now that Christ our Lord has come, He has fulfilled that. And so what is what is necessary is to receive his rest, which comes when we hear his word. When, and, and what does his word teach us? Well, it, it teaches us as us, it teaches us that, as you said, we are made holy, not by what we do, but by him. He is and, and man, talk about the the two things that that we play absolutely no part in. God is our creator. I, I did had nothing to do with my creation. He created me. And God is my redeemer. I had nothing to do with my salvation. He saved me by his grace. Those are the things that we remember that we receive when we come together to hear his word. That's the place where the holiness is still given. And so, yeah, that's the the eternal nature of the third commandment is to receive God's gift of holiness in his in his rest because he's our creator and redeemer. It's not about the day, but it's about receiving that gift. And so we are free to to worship on on Sundays, which is a fitting day because that's the day of our Lord's resurrection. Right. Right. As we're told, uh, you know, the apostles and, and the prophets did when they worshiped on the what they called the Lord's Day, which is a good thing. You're right. It's uh, the the fulfillment is here. You know, we don't need to continue to uh, you don't need to preheat an oven after the cake has been baked, you know, so, <laughs> you know, it's it's OK. We we can we can move we can. We can, I like that. We can move. We can move on uh, from that particular uh, letter, as you described it, which I think is helpful. Kind of that letter of of the law. Right. Um, right. And and just I mean to go back to the the way we started with this being the eternal, you know, the Decalogue being eternal. The reason that we we recognize within say the third commandment that which has has been fulfilled is because of the way the New Testament speaks about this, because of the way Jesus spoke to the the Pharisees and his controversies over the Sabbath with them, because of the way Paul writes, I think it's in Colossians 2, where he talks about not not worrying about which days you observe. Because of those, we recognize that this part of the third commandment has been fulfilled and is not binding in the sense of which day it is, but the matter of the holiness received in the word of Christ, that's the the point for us that we do hold on to. Right. You know, if we, along the lines of um, the eternal nature, if we want to run eternal the other direction, uh, we should be careful to point out that the Ten Commandments aren't anything new. Mm, um, yeah. It's not as though Cain killing Abel was appropriate because it happened before Horeb uh, or before Mount Sinai. So, and I may have shared this even on your your show once before it is one of my uh, favorite pastoral experiences and connections. I was visiting a family at a previous parish. And uh, when I walked into their house uh, taped to the front door was a handwritten note uh, that said, put away your shoes, you know, angrily written in Sharpie by, by bomb, uh, put away your shoes. And uh, I remember sitting there, and it, speaking with mom and dad, and, and I said, that uh, note on your on your door, is that a, I asked them, I said, something tells me this isn't a new rule. Like, you didn't write that because this is a new rule for the household. You wrote this down because it's a 
eternal rule that's not being followed. Mm-hmm. And so by writing it down, I will call to your remembrance that you need to put away your shoes or, you know, put dishes in the sink or whatever, or whatever it is. Uh, so the 10, the 10 commandments along those lines, they're not new. It's not God saying, Hey, the only new thing we have is Christ. Right. Um, but, but the, but the 10 commandments have, have always been, and um, the, the commands are articulated and then preserved as a mm. covenant for the people. Yeah, that, that that is a helpful example. So they didn't they didn't write that just for you when you were walking into. Yeah, I sure hope not. <laughs> I did obey the I did obey this, you know, uh, did obey the command, but uh, <laughs> that's good. That, that's good. I, it wasn't written on my heart. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> but I, I do I do think that's helpful, right? They, it was written down to preserve what had always been true. I like that, and and same similarly with these with the ten words with the Decalogue, written down to preserve God's will, the way that He designed creation to to work. And I I mean that's that's maybe just a a good thing to to keep in mind that this is, you know, God gives the Ten Commandments for our good, and I think we we've touched on this, but he, you know, the the way the Ten Commandments are written. Is is that they are primarily given in a, a negative sense? You shall not, or you shall have no. Right? It's it's spoken in that way, but within each one, and this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the way Luther explains him in the Catechism, is God's actually giving you something good, and it's not just a prohibition from what you shouldn't do, but there's a, a good thing that God is preserving and giving to you so that you might use it to your your benefit. That's I think something that's always worth pointing out about these ten words. Right, right. So the, you know, don't steal. Well, you're you're going to preserve, preserve or improve and protect your neighbor's possessions and income. Uh, yeah, defend them. Speak well of them. Eighth commandment, uh, reputation. That's it's good. It's very good to point out. Um, yeah, yeah. With, we'll with, talk about the positive and negative aspects of any given commandment. At least that's how I I've typically taught it uh, within the parish. Right. Right, right, yeah, and, and that's the way Luther generally speaks within the the catechism. He points out what you should do, what you should not do. I guess in the reverse order, normally what you should not do, and then what you should do. But that's that's an important thing, and these are, are good things. God cares about your possessions. He cares about your your parents. He cares about your your spouse. Right. I mean, these he cares about the way you listen to him. These are all good things that God is giving you to use for your benefit. Right. I suppose the other thing, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and and in like order, then you should care about those things Hmm. for your neighbor. So as God cares about these things for you, you should care about those things for, for, for your neighbor. This isn't just a, uh, (laughs) uh, it's not just about, Hey, I got to look out for me and mine. You know, it's, uh, Mm -hmm. it's a lookout. Well, again, second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right, right. Yeah. The the other thing that I is probably important to bring out, especially as we think about the way that Jesus speaks about these commandments, is that as as they're written, it it might be an, an easy thing to think, oh, you know, I didn't physically kill anyone, so I've kept the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. I didn't take anything from the grocery store without paying for it, so I kept the commandment, you shall not steal. But within these commandments, Jesus makes this plain. It's not only the outward action that's in view, but also the the heart that's in view. Right, yeah, the motivate he, he raises the bar rather than lowers it, right? So murder just moves right into, uh, as well, as John will say in his epistle, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
Um, Jesus says similarly, uh, anyone who hates his brother is liable to the same judgment as though you've you've actually killed someone. You know, cheating on your wife isn't just actual affair, but looking lustfully at at someone else um, along those lines. So the the commandments are they're big. <laughs> they're 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 big and not uh, they're not uh, easily well. Yeah, if you think the goal is just perfection in this life, that's um, it's not there. That's right. It's not their purpose. That's right. It's yeah. not their purpose. Uh, there is a value right. in knowing the will of God. Uh, there is a value in knowing your need for a savior, and there is a value in uh, serving your neighbor. Uh, but mm. uh, but it's not. The commandments are many things, but uh, staircase to heaven isn't one of them. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. With about with about a, a minute here, Pastor Cook, help us to to wrap things up on the the ten commandments, the ten words, and the way that Moses uses them to to begin his sermon, his second sermon in Deuteronomy? Well, because I want to always uh, maintain that justification is by grace through faith. Uh, the salvation of the people from Israel or from of Israel from Egypt preceded the giving of the law. Uh, they didn't get the 10 commandments, follow the 10 commandments. And then when they reached a certain threshold, God led them through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, he brought his people out by grace through the Red Sea uh, and, and then gives to them uh, uh, his will uh, that is uh, also for their for their benefit, and um, and it, it has broad application. So I heard recently, uh, I had not heard this before, but it makes sense. Take any kind of governing philosophy in the world, Marxism, socialism, whatever it is, communism, uh, they all work if the people under them just do the Ten Commandments. Hmm. So hmm. it's like, oh well, I mean, it just it trumps all others uh, because. It is the will of God. Pastor Tim Cook is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas, helping us today with Deuteronomy 4, verse 44, through chapter 5, verse 21. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texans. The Ten Commandments are the will of God. He shows us what his will for our life is, what a good life looks like. Though we cannot keep them perfectly, our Lord Jesus Christ has. He came from heaven to keep them for us and win our salvation so that we might receive that salvation as his gift. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.